Christ, I can see you discerningly of a great man, not too close followed by those who claim him, his moral teaching more excellent. For myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. The wars which had been fought, the burnings and chickenery that religious disputes had facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether, on balance, the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The brotherhood of man a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss universal, and he certainly had me. But my friend sat before me, and he made the point black declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he had admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scraps of heat to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. That floored me. It began to look as though religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in the human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. I saw that my friend was much more inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped a new soil. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me the vestiges of my old prejudice. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of nature, but I resisted the thought of a czar of the heavens, however loving his sway may be. I have since talked with scores of men who felt the same way. My friend suggested what then seemed a novel idea. He said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? That statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. I saw that growth could start from that point. Upon a foundation of complete willingness, I might build 
what I saw in my friend. Would I have it? Of course I would. Thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want Him enough. At long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. A new world came into view. The real significance of my experience in the cathedral burst upon me. For a brief moment, I had needed and wanted God. There had been a humble willingness to have Him with me, and He came. But soon, but soon the sense of His presence had been blotted out by worldly clamors, mostly those within myself, and so it had been ever since. How blind I had been. At the hospital, I was separated from alcohol for the last time. Treatment seemed wise, for I showed signs of delirium tremens. There I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood Him to do with me as He would. I placed myself unreservedly under His care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without Him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away, root and branch. I have not had a drink since. My schoolmate visited me and I fully acquainted him with my problem and deficiencies. We made a list of people I had hurt or toward whom I felt resentment. I expressed my entire willingness to approach these individuals, admitting my wrong. Never was I to be critical of them. I was to write all such matters to the almost of my ability. I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within. Common sense would thus become uncommon sense. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as He would have me. Never was I to pray for myself except as my request bore on my usefulness to others. Then only might I expect to receive, but that would be in great measure. My friend promised when these things were done, I would enter upon a new relationship with my Creator, that I would have the elements of a way of living which answered all my problems. Belief in the power of God plus enough willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things were essential requirements. Simply but not easy, a price had to be paid. It meant destruction of self-centeredness. I must turn in all things to the Father of lies who presides over us all. These were revolutionary and drastic proposals, but the moment I fully accepted them, the effect was electric. There was a sense of victory, followed by such a, a peace and serenity as I have never known. There was utter confidence. I felt lifted up as though the great clean wind of a mountaintop blew through and through. God comes to most men gradually. His impact on me was suddenly and profound. For a moment I was alarmed and called my friend the doctor to ask if I were still sane. He listened and wondered as I talked. 
Finally, he shook his head, saying, Something has happened to you. I don't understand, but you had better hang on to it. Anything is better than the way you were. The good doctor now sees many men who have such experiences. He knows that they are real. While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appalling true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then fate will be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. My wife and I abandoned ourselves with enthusiasm to the idea of helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. I was fortunate, for my old business associates remained skeptical for a year and a half during which I found little work. I was not too well at the time and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink, but I soon found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic was saved the day. Many times I have gone to my old hospital in despair. On talking to a man there, I would be amazingly lifted up and set on my feet. It is a design for living that works in rough goings. We commenced to make many fast friends, and a fellowship had grown up among us of which it is a wonderful thing to feel a part. The joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. I have seen hundreds of families set their feet in the path that really goes somewhere. Have seen the most impossible domestic situation righted. Fuse and bitterness of all sorts wiped out. I have seen men come out, out, out of asylums and resume a vital place in the lives of their families and communities. Business and professional men have regained their standing. There is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. In one western city and its environs, there are 1,000 of us and our families. We meet frequently so that newcomers may find the fellowship they seek. At these informal gatherings, one may often see from 50 to 200 persons. We are growing in numbers and power. An alcoholic in his cups is an unlovely creature. Our struggles with them are variously strenuous, comic, and tragic. One poor chap committed suicide in my home. He could not or would not see our way of life. There is, however, a vast amount of fun about it all. I suppose some would be shocked at our seemingly worldliness and levity. But just underneath there is deadly earnestness. Fate has to work 24 hours a day 
in and through us or we perish. Most of us feel we need look no further for utopia. We have it with us right here and now. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Bill W., co-founder of AA, died January 24, 1971. In 2014, approximately 115,000 groups were registered. Thousands and thousands and thousands of groups that go unregistered that have importune meetings and conversations concerning this way of life. I, for myself, have found this article extremely touching and beautiful. And knowing that with God all things are possible, I turn it over, even in my ugliest repairs, attempts. I thank God for them. And he says, we're going to get through them some way or another. It's going to be all right. Chapter one, Bill's story. War fever ran high in the New England town to which we knew young officers from Plattsburgh were assigned, and we were flattered when the first citizens took us to their homes, making us feel heroic. Here was love, applause, war, moments sublime with intervals hilarious. I was part of life at last, and in the midst of the excitement I discovered liquor. I forgot the strong warnings and the prejudice of my people concerning drink. In time we sailed for over there. I was very lonely and again turned to alcohol. We landed in England. I visited Winchester Cathedral. Much moved, I wandered outside. My attention was caught by a dog girl on an old tombstone. Here lies a Hampshire grenadier who caught his death drinking cold, small beer. A good soldier is never forgot, whether he died by musket or by pot. Ominous warning, which I failed to heed. 22 and a veteran of foreign wars. I went home at last. I fancy myself a leader, for had not the men of my battery given me a special token of appreciation, my talent for leadership, I imagine, would place me at the head of vast enterprises which I would manage with the utmost assurance. I took a night law course and obtained employment an investigator as an investigator for an insurance company. The drive for success was on. I proved to the world I was important. My work took me about Wall Street and little by little I became interested in the market. Many people lost money but some became very rich, why not I? I studied economics and business as well as law. Potential alcoholic that I was, I nearly failed my law course. At one of those finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. We had long talks when I would steal her foreboding by telling her that men of genius conceive their best projects when drunk. 
Let the most majestic constructions of philosophic thought were so derived. By the time I had completed the course, I knew that law was not for me. The inviting maelstrom of Wall Street had me in its grip. Business and financial leaders were my heroes. Out of this alloy of drink and speculation, I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all be cut but me to ribbons. I commenced to forge the weapon that one day would turn in its flight like a boomerang and all but cut me to ribbons. Living modestly, my wife and I saved a thousand dollars. It went into certain securities, then cheap and rather unpopular. I rightly imagined that they would someday have a great rise. I failed to persuade my broker friends to send me out looking over factories and management. But my wife and I decided to go anyway. I had developed a theory that most people lost money in stocks through ignorance of markets. I discovered many more reasons later on. We gave up our positions and we off we rode on a motorcycle, the sidecar stuffed with tent, blankets, a change of clothes, and three huge volumes of financial reference service. Our friends thought a lunacy commission should be appointed. Perhaps they were right. I had had some success at speculation, so we had a little money. But we once worked on a farm for a month to avoid drawing on our small capital. That was the last honest manual labor on my part for many a day. We covered the whole eastern United States in a year. At the end of it, my report to Wall Street procured me a position there and the use of a large expense account. The exercise of an option brought in more money, leaving us with profit of several thousands of dollars for that year. For the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. My judgment and ideas were followed by many by the tunes of paper millions. The great boom of the late 20s was seething and swelling. Drink was taking an important and an exhilarating part of my life. There was loud talk in the jazz places of town. Everyone spent in thousands and chattered in millions. Scoffers could scoff and be damned. I made a host of fair-weather friends. My drinking assumed more serious proportions, continue all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row, and I became a lone wolf. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for my loyalty to my wife, help at times by extreme drunkenness kept me out of those scrapes. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country. My wife so applauded while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to caroom around the exclusive course which had inspired such an awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of a tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his tilt with assumed skepticism. 
Abruptly in October 1929, hell broke loose on the New York Stock Exchange. After one of those days of inferno, I wobbled from a hotel bar to a brokerage office. It was 8 o'clock, five hours after the market closed. The ticker still clattered. I was staring at an inch of the tape which bore the inscriptions XYZ minus 32. It had been 52 that morning. I was finished and so were my friends. The papers reported men jumping to death from the towers of high finance. That disgusted me. I would not jump. I went back to the bar. My friends had dropped several millions since 10 o'clock. So what? Tomorrow was another day. As I drank, the old fear's determination to win came back. Next morning, I telephoned a friend in Montreal. He had plenty of money left and thought I had better go to Canada. By the following spring, we were living in our accustomed style. I felt like Napoleon returning from Elba. No St. Helena for me. But drinking caught up with me again, and my generous friend had to let me go. This time, we stayed broke. We went to live with my friend's parents. I found a job, then lost it as a result of a brawl with a taxi driver. Mercifully, no one could guess that I was to have no real employment for five years, or hardly draw a sober breath. My wife began to work in a department store, coming home exhausted to find me drunk. I became an unwelcome hanger-on at brokerage places. Liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. Bathtub, gin, two bottles a day, and often three got to be routine. Sometimes a small deal would net a few hundred dollars, and I would pay my bills at the bars and delicatessens. This went on endlessly, and I began to waken very early in the morning, shaken violently. A tumbler full of tumbler full of gin, followed by a half dozen bottles of beer, would be required if I was to eat my breakfast. Nevertheless, I still thought I could control the situation, and there were periods of sobriety which renewed my wife's hope. Gradually, things got worse. The house was taken over by the mortgage holder. My mother-in-law died. My wife and father-in-law became ill. Then I got a promising business opportunity. Stocks were at the low point of 1932, and I had somehow formed a group to buy. I was to share generously in the profits. Then I went on a Parisian bender, and that chance vanished. I woke up. This has to be stopped. I saw I could not take so much as one drink. I was through forever. Before then, I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business, and so I did. Shortly afterwards, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It didn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed the drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder, for such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Sometimes passed, and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I have what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone. In no time, I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. 
As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then, and I did. The remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The courage to do battle was not there. My brain raced uncontrollably, and there was a terrible sense of impending calamity. I hardly dared cross the street lest I collapse and be run down by an early morning truck, for it was scarcely daylight, and all night place supplied me with a dozen glasses of ale. My riding, riding nerves were stilled at last. A morning paper told me that the market had gone to hell again. Well, so had I. The market would recover, but I wouldn't. That was a hard thought. Should I kill myself? No, not now. Then a mental fog settled down. Gin will fix that. So two bottles and oblivion. The mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when the morning terror and madness were on me. Again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet there was poison. Cursing myself for a weakling, there were flights from the city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. Then came the night when the physical and mental torture was so hellish I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. Somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor lest I suddenly leave. A doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative. This combination soon landed me on the rocks. People fear for my sanity, so did I. I could eat little or nothing when drinking and I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law is a physician. And through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called Belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that through those certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics that the will is amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. My incredible behavior in the face of a desperate desire to stop was explained. Understanding myself, I fared forth in high hope. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. Surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. But it was not, for the frightful day came when I drank once more. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. After a time, I returned to the hospital. This was the finish, the curtain, it seemed to me. My weary and despairing wife was informed that it would all end with heart failure during, during delirium tremens or I would develop a wet brain, perhaps within a year. She would have soon have to give me over to the undertaker or the asylum. They did not need to tell me, I knew, and almost welcomed the idea. It was a devastating blow to my pride. 
I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities, of my capacity to surmount obstacles, was cornered at last. Now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of thoughts who had gone on before. I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What would I not give to make amends? But that was over now. No words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me up a bit. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And on Armistice Day, 1934... I was off again. Every one became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. How I, how dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debauch. I was soon to be captivated into what I call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Near the end of the bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected that there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through the night and the next day. My wife at work, I wondered whether I dare hide. A full bottle of gin near the head of our bed, I would need it before the daylight. My musing was interrupting by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him, unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was a time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing an oasis, drinkers are like that. The door opened, and he stood there, fresh skin and glowing. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? I pushed the drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Come, come, what's this all about? I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smiling. He said, I got religion. I was a guest, so that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now, I suspect, a little crack about religion. He had that starry eye look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gym will last longer than his preaching. But he did no, did no ranting. And in a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They had told of a single religious idea and a practical program of action, that was two months ago, and the result was evident. It worked. 
he had come to pass his experience along to me if I care to have it. I was shocked but interested. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. He talked for hours of childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays, way over there on the hillside. There was the preferred temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings, his insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His, his fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died, these recollections welled up from the past that made me swallow hard. That wartime day in old Winchester Cathedral came back again. I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I had often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people are. For that means blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher of aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlaid it all. How could there be so much of precise and immutable law and no intelligence? I simply had to believe in a spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. With ministers and the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. Physician, heal thyself. Psychiatrist and surgeon, he had lost his way until he realized that God, not he, was the great healer. I am a physician, licensed to practice in a western state. I am also an alcoholic. In two ways, I may be a little different from other alcoholics. First, we all hear at AA meetings about those who have lost everything, those who have been in jail, those who have been in prison, those who have lost their families, those who have lost their income. I never lost any of it. I never was on skid row. I made more money in the last year of my drinking than I made in my whole life. My wife never hinted that she would leave me. Everything that I touched from grammar school on was successful. I was president of my grammar school, student body. I was president of all of my classes in high school. And in my last year, I was president of the student body. I was president of each class in the university and president of that student body. I was voted the man most likely to succeed. The same thing occurred in medical school. I belong to more medical societies and honor societies than men 10 to 20 years my senior. Mine was the skid row of success. 
The fiscal skid row in any city is miserable. This, the skid row of success is just as miserable. The second way in which perhaps I differ from some other alcoholics is this. Many alcoholics state that they don't particularly like the state of alcohol, but that they like the effect. I loved alcohol. I used to like it to get it on my fingers so I could lick them and get another taste. I had a lot of fun drinking. I enjoyed it immensely. And then one ill-defined day, one day that I can't recall, I stepped across the line that alcoholics know as so well. And from that day on, drinking was miserable. When a few drinks made me feel good before I went over that line, those same drinks now made me rich. In an attempt to get over that feeling, there was a quick onslaught of a greater number of drinks, and then all was lost. Alcohol failed to serve the purpose. On the last day I was drinking, I went up to see a friend who had had a good deal of trouble with alcohol and whose wife had left him a number of times. He had come back, however, and he was on his program. In my stupid way, I went up to see him with the idea in the back of my mind that I would investigate alcoholic phenomena from a medical standpoint. Deep in my heart was the feeling that maybe I could get some help there. This friend gave me a pamphlet, and I took it home and had my wife read it to me. There were two sins in it that struck me. One said, don't feel that you are a martyr because you stopped drinking. And this hit me between the eyes. The second one said, don't feel that you stopped drinking for anyone other than yourself. And this hit me between the eyes. After my wife had read this to me, I said to her, as I have said many times in desperation, I have to, I have God to do something. She's a good-natured soul and said, Ah, I wouldn't worry about it. Probably something will happen. And then we went up the side of the hill where we had a little barbecue area to make the fire for the barbecue. And on the way up, I thought to myself, I'll go back down to the kitchen and refill this drink. And just then, something did happen. The thought came to me. This is the last one. I was well into the second fifth by this time. And as that thought came to me, it was as though someone had reached down and taken a heavy overcoat off my shoulders, for that was the last one. About two days later, I was called by a friend of mine from Nevada City. He's a brother of my wife's closest friends. He said, Earl, and I said, yes. He said, I am an alcoholic. What do I do? I gave him some ideas of what you do, and so I made my first 12-step call before I came ever into the program. The satisfaction I got from giving him a little of what I had read in those pamphlets far surpassed any feeling that I had ever had before in helping patients. So I decided that I would go to my first meeting. I was introduced as a psychiatrist. I belong to the American Psychiatrist Society, but I don't practice psychiatry as such. I am a surgeon. As someone in AA said to me once upon a time, there is something worse than a confused psychiatrist. I will never forget the first meeting that I attended. There were five people present, including me. 
At the end of, of the table sat our community butcher. At the other side of the table sat one of the carpenters in our community. And at the farther end of the table sat the man who ran the bakery, while on the side sat my friend who was a mechanic. I recall as I walked into that meeting saying to myself, Here I am, a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, a fellow of the International College of Surgeons, a diplomat of one of the great specialty boards in the United States, a member of the American Psychiatrist Society, and I have to go to the butcher, the baker, and the carpenter to help me make a man out of me. Something else happened to me. This was such a new thought that I got all sorts of books on higher powers. And I put a Bible on my bedside. And I put a Bible in my car. It is still there. And I put a Bible in my locker at the hospital. And I put a Bible in my desk. And I put a big book in my knife stand. And I put a 12 and 12 tradition in my locker at the hospital. And I got books by Emmett Fox. And I got books by God knows who. And I got to reading all these things. And the first thing you, you know, I was lifted right out of the AA group. And I floated higher and higher, even higher until I was way up on a pink cloud, which is known as Pink Seven. And I felt miserable again. So I thought to myself, I might as well just as well be drunk as feel like this. I went to Clark, the community butcher, and I said, Clark, what is the matter with me? I don't feel right. I have been on this program for three months, and I feel terrible. And he said, Earl, why don't you come on over and let me talk to you for a minute? So he got me a cup of coffee and a piece of cake and sat me down and said, Why, there's nothing wrong with you. You've been sober for three months, been working hard. You've been doing all right. But then he said, Let me say something to you. We have here in this community an organization that helps people, and this organization is known as Alcoholics Anonymous. Why don't you join it? I said, huh, what do you think I've been doing? Well, he said, you've been sober, but you've been floating way up on a cloud somewhere. Why don't you go home and get the big book and open it at page 58 and see what it says? So I did. I got the big book and I read it. And this is what it said. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. The word thoroughly rang a bell. And then it went on to say, Half measures avail us nothing. We stood at the turning point. And the last sentence was, We ask his protection and care with complete abandon. Complete abandon? Half measures avail us nothing. Thoroughly follow our path, completely give himself to the simple program, rang in my swell head. Years earlier, I had gone into psychoanalysis to get relief. <clears throat> I spent five and a half years in psychoanalysis and proceeded to become a drunk. I don't mean that in any sense of a derogatory statement about psychotherapy. It is a very great tool, not too potent, but a great tool. I would do it again. I tried every gimmick that there was to get some peace of mind, but it was not until I was brought to my alcoholic knees. When I was brought to a group in my own community with the butcher, the baker, the carpenter, and the mechanic, who were able to give me the 12 steps, that I was finally given some semblance of, of an answer 
to the last half of the first step. So after taking the first half of the first step and very genuinely admitting myself to Alcoholics Anonymous, something happened. Then I thought to myself, imagine an alcoholic admitting anything, but I made my admission just the same. The third step said, made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood Him. Now they ask us to make a decision. We got to turn the whole business over to some joker we can't even see. And this chokes the alcoholic. Here he is powerless, unmanageable, in the grip of something bigger than he is, and he's got to turn this whole business over to someone else. It fills the alcoholic with rage. We are great people. We can handle anything. And so one gets to thinking to oneself, who is this God? Who is this fellow we are supposed to turn everything over to? What can he do for us that we can't do for ourselves? Well, I don't know who he is, but I got my own idea. For myself, I have an absolute proof of the existence of God. I was sitting in my coffee one time after I had operated on a woman I had, it had been a long four or five hour operation, a large surgical procedure, and she was on her ninth or tenth post-operative day. She was doing fine. She was up and around. And that day, her husband phoned me and said, Doctor, thank you very much for curing my wife. And I thank him for his felicitations. And he hung up. And then I scratched my head and said to myself, What a fantastic thing for a man to say that I cured his wife. Here I am, down in my office behind my desk, and there she is, out at the hospital. I'm not even there. And if I was there, the only thing I could do would be to give her moral support, and yet he thanked me for curing his wife. I thought to myself, what is curing that woman? Yes, I put on those stitches. The great boss had given me diagnostic and surgical talent, and he had loan it to me for the use for the rest of my life. It doesn't belong to me. He has loaned it to me, and I did my job. But that ended nine days ago. What healed those tissues that I closed? I didn't. This, to me, is the proof of the existence of somethingness greater than I am. I couldn't practice medicine without this great physician. All I do in a very simple way is to help him cure my patients. Shortly after I was starting to work on the program, I realized I was not a good father. I wasn't a good husband, but oh, I was a good provider. I never robbed my family of anything. I gave them everything except the greatest thing in the world, and that is peace of mind. So I went to my wife and I asked her if there was something that she and I could do to somehow get together. And she turned on her heel and looked me squarely in the eye and said, You don't care about anything about my problem and I couldn't have I could have smacked her but I said to myself grab on to your serenity she laughed and I sat down and crossed my hands and looked up and said for God's sake help me and then a silly simple thought came to me I didn't know anything about being a father I didn't know how to come home and work weekends like other husbands I didn't know how to entertain my family but I remember that every night after dinner, my wife would get up and do the dishes. Well, I could do the dishes, so I went to her and said, There's only one thing I want in my whole life, and I don't want any com commendation. I don't want any credit. 
I don't want anything from you or, or Jancy for the rest of your life. Except one thing. And that is the opportunity to do anything you want always. And I would like to start off by doing the dishes. And now I am doing the darn dishes every night. Doctors have been notoriously unsuccessful in helping alcoholics. Notoriously. They have contributed fantastic amounts of time and work to our problem. But they aren't able, it seems, to arrest either your alcoholism or mine. And the clergy have tried hard to help us, but we haven't been helped. And the psychiatrists have had thousands of couches and have put you and me on them many, many times. But it hasn't helped us very much. Though he has tried hard, and we owe the clergy and the doctor and the psychiatrist a deep depth of gratitude, but they haven't helped our alcoholism, except in a few rare instances. But Alcoholics Anonymous has helped. What is this power that AA possesses, this curative power? I don't know what it is. I suppose the doctor might say, this is psychosomatic medicine. I suppose the psychiatrist might say, this is benevolent interpersonal relations. I suppose others would say, this is group psychotherapy. To me, it is God.